The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. The Gospel of John is the, the fourth Gospel. It was also the last Gospel to be written. So Mark was probably the first Gospel that was written, and if you remember, Mark uh, was influenced by the Apostle Peter. So it was probably written about 64, 65 A.D. And then Matthew took what Mark wrote and followed suit, and Matthew penned his Gospel and then Luke, and then John wrote his gospel about 20-something years later. So John is writing about 90 AD, and that gives him the possibility and the perspective of, of stepping back. He doesn't have to rewrite what the other, uh, what we call the synoptic gospel writers have written. He can be selective. So you remember at the end of the gospel of John, John says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ." the Son of God. So it's written for an evangelistic perspective. He's saying, let me take a step back and tell you some things that the other gospel writers don't include so that you can believe and trust in Him. And one of the things that he includes is this whole narrative that Jesus gives us in John chapter 10 of the Good Shepherd. No other uh, gospels include this. You remember the context for this entire narrative is that there was a man born blind whom Jesus healed on his way into the temple. And there was a a big uh, confusion about this man and what had happened to him, and and people were debating uh, essentially whether he had been born blind or not, whether a miracle had taken place. A group of Pharisees decided to keep court and decide what had happened to this man, and they really couldn't figure it out. They, and the reason why they couldn't figure it out is because they refused to believe that an actual miracle had taken place. And the man said, do you, do you too want to become his disciples? This I know, I once was blind, but now I see. This is what I know. And he testifies that Jesus did in fact heal him. And for that, they kicked him out. And by kicking him out, I mean they, they kicked him out of Judaism. They said, you're done. You can't enter the synagogues, you can't enter the temple, you can't enter the worship. As far as it depends upon us, you are no longer one of God's people. And then Jesus follows up with him at the end of John chapter 9. He says, do you know who the Son of Man is? He said, tell me, Lord, so I can believe. He says, you're looking at him. You're looking at him. And so he believes, and then he immediately worships Christ. He immediately worships Christ. Then Jesus turns, and this is where the narrative of the Good Shepherd picks up, and he addresses those Pharisees who had kicked him out. And he said, let let me tell you an allegory to explain to you who I am. Here's the allegory. There's There's a sheepfold, and robbers jump into the sheepfold to get at the sheep. He's implying, you're the robbers. I am the Good Shepherd, and I come to get my sheep whom are a remnant in Israel, 
and lead them out. And lead them out. So he presents this reality of the fact that he is this good shepherd. And I'm convinced that the reason why many Christians struggle to understand the essence of the Christian life and the nature of their relationship with the Lord is because they haven't studied John chapter 10 and because they don't understand the reality of the good shepherd. Because here's the thing, when you look at Christ, when you look at Christ, one of the immediate results is is that you gain assurance of salvation if you're truly a believer. Uh, Robert Murray McShane said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Because the more that you look at yourself, the more introspective you become. Okay, am I really a Christian? Do I really believe this? Are, do my good works really show that I'm a believer? Whereas when you start to look at Christ, you begin to think about the fact, the objective fact of what he's done for you that he died on the cross, that he rose again from the grave, all for you. And those are objective realities. So you gain assurance of salvation. When you look at Christ, you are transformed more and more into his image. That's how sanctification works. That's how God changes you in the power of the Holy Spirit, is that you look at Christ through his word, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So if you want to be transformed, if you want to become more like Christ, you have to look at Christ. And third, the more that you look at Christ, and this is, I think, one of the, 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 the main problems with the church today, is the more you desire to worship Him. And, and the reason why I say that's a problem is because the American church has become so me-focused. What do I get out of this? You show me how Christianity can be a means to the ends that I already want. That's why I'm coming. Show me how to fix my marriage. Show me how to... How to have better relationships, whatever. The essence of Christianity is Christ and Him crucified. And the more that you look at Christ, the more that you can't help but worship Him. I mean, when you see Him, you desire to worship Him. And so we have to get our eyes up. Our Lord is reigning at the right hand of the Father. You, you read Revelation 5 and 6. What's, what's heaven doing right now? Right now, they're worshiping Christ. And that's what we have gathered to do. We haven't come to stare at our navels. We've come to worship Him and bow down to Him. So we're looking at these qualities of the Good Shepherd and, and who Jesus reveals Himself to be. And two weeks ago, we saw four of these qualities. I'll just show these to you very briefly because we've already seen them and studied them. But the first quality is that he is the legitimate shepherd. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 10, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. He's talking about legitimacy. Jesus came fulfilling all the Old Testament types and prophecies. You can sit down with a Jew and say, look, Jesus Christ is the legitimate Messiah. Micah 5.2, 
Isaiah 11, Isaiah 9, Deuteronomy 18. He's the prophet that is the king. All of it. Isaiah 53. Ask a Jew, where is, where is your Isaiah 53 lamb? Where is he? They won't have an answer for you because it's Christ. It's Christ. He's the legitimate shepherd. Two, he's the pursuing shepherd. Look at verse 3. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. So he came for his remnant, the sheep that were in the tribe of Israel. Not, not for all of Israel, but for the remnant. According to God's decree of election, Jesus came, he pursued his sheep, and he led them out. And that leads to the third quality, that he is the leading shepherd. Look at verse 4. When he brought when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. He doesn't drive the sheep from behind. He leads them, and the way that he leads, the way that our Lord leads us is with his voice. In other words, through the word of God. That's how he leads you. You sit down in the morning, you open up this book, you read it, and it's a living book. Remember Hebrews 4, the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's not an ancient book, it's a current book, because God the Holy Spirit speaks through it, and thus God leads you. So he's a leading shepherd. And then fourth, he's the exclusive shepherd. Look at verse 7. So Jesus explained all that. The the Pharisees didn't understand it. Jesus says, look, I'm going to try another illustration with you. Verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am. There's one of those I am statements of deity. He says, I am the door of the sheep. In other words, I am the. Notice the article there, the word the. He's not a door, he's the door. He's the only door in and out of the sheepfold. He's saying, I'm the door by which you must enter and exit. That door is closed to the robbers, that door is closed to the goats. But he is the exclusive door. He is the only Savior. And we talked about the fact that, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. The only way. There is no other way. There's no other name given among men by which you can be saved. He is the exclusive shepherd. So we're going to cover two more this morning. Fifth is the saving shepherd. And that picks up in verse 9. Look at verse 9. These are, these are so important. These are so important. Let me read verses 9 and 10. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Really remarkable verses. These are those verses, I often think about Scripture being so rich. There are some verses that I could abstract this verse and I could meditate, it, meditate on it till the day that I die and not exhaust its riches. That's what Scripture is like. You could take, take verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You take that verse, roll it over in your mind, and you could 
think about all that Christ has done for you, and you could meditate on that one verse the rest of your life. What Jesus is revealing in verse 9 about himself is a very important reality, very important, and that is that he is the saving shepherd. He is the saving shepherd. He reiterates that I am statement. Again, he says, I am the door. And then notice the invitation. He says, if anyone enters by the door, and there's a condition, if he meets this condition, if he enters by the door, Jesus says, he will be saved. That's the one requirement for salvation. It's faith in Christ. It's not good works. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this one verse, Jesus explains three benefits to us of salvation. Let me walk you through these quickly. So these are the benefits that the saving shepherd provides. First is security. Look at that word saved. It's the Greek word sozo. It's speaking, um, it's, it's a future tense verb. He's saying he will be saved in the future. And of course, sheep face all types of dangers. They are virtually defenseless animals, right? You see a sheep, they can't protect themselves. They need to be saved if there's any danger. So in terms, though, of people, because this is all an allegory about people, sheep, what is he talking about? You remember Paul when he was in the Philippian jail, and he and Barnabas are singing, or Silas, Paul and Silas singing, and then there's an earthquake. The jailer thinks that everybody has left, and he comes in, he finds that they're still there. Remember his question? He says, what must I do to be saved? That's the question. What must I do to be saved? Paul's answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Here's the question. Saved from what? Saved from what? What must you be saved from? from. R.C. Sproul one time wrote a book called Saved From What? It's a great question. And until you answer that question, you really don't understand what Christianity is about. What are we saved from? Is it just poor decisions? Bad relationships? The way that our parents treated us when we were growing up? What are we saved from? And the Bible is very clear about what we are saved from. We are saved from, in the future, the wrath of God. The judgment of God. This is the message of the apostles, friends. That one day, things will not just continue as is. Ad infinitum. They won't. One day, Lord Jesus come, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back. We will see Him in the sky. He will come back and put his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will judge the living and the dead. That day will happen. And those that refuse to believe in him on that day will experience his wrath. Listen, this is um, Revelation 6. John writes, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks. And they said, Fall on us 
and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne. Listen to this. And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? So Jesus Christ, He comes the first time to save. He's coming the second time to judge. Here's, here's the, the wonder and beauty of the Gospel, is that Jesus saves us from Himself. Jesus, that, that's what salvation is. It's that you are saved from the wrath of God that we all deserve. And that's why He had to go to the cross. He couldn't just be a moral example. He couldn't. He had to go to the cross. And the cross is a picture of substitution. God pouring out the sin penalty that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve that would take us forever in hell to pay, He pours out on the Son for six hours on the cross. That's the Gospel. Jesus saves us from His own wrath. Here's what Sproul said. Quote, what every human being needs to be saved from is God. The last thing in the world the impenitent sinner ever wants to meet on the other side of the grave is God. But the glory of the gospel is that the one from whom we need to be saved is the very one who saves us. God in saving us saves us from himself. But here's the thing, God has provided an opportunity for redemption. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So that's salvation. You, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you have that security. Second aspect of our salvation that we experience is freedom. Look back at verse 9. So we will be saved and then we go in and out. So the sheep are able to go in and out of this, of this sheepfold. That's the illustration. And we are able to go in and out to the Lord's pasture. Psalm 121.8 says, The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Really, this freedom that the sheep experience coming in and out of the sheepfold represents the reality of assurance. Assurance. That your salvation is secure. You can go in and you can go out, but nothing is going to change your status of being God's sheep. Nothing will change your status. You are secure you have this freedom. That's, that's the, the reality of, of Protestantism. Roman Catholicism said you can lose that freedom. You can lose that assurance. If you, if you commit a, a mortal sin, you're, you, it's done. You've you, you got to come and make confession and do all sorts of penance. Protestantism said no. Once you are in grace, you stand on grace and it can never be lost because it doesn't depend upon you. That's why Luther said, sin boldly. 
and what he meant by that is not go sin, but he said, when you sin, don't throw up your arms and say, it's all lost. I'm no longer God's sheep because I've sinned. He says, no, when you sin, know that you have an advocate with the Father. Nail pierced hands at the right hand in heaven. So the good news of the gospel is that once you are in, you're always in. Look, look down at, this is verse 28. Um, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And look at this. They will never perish. Never. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you believe Jesus? No one will snatch you out of his hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. No one. So you have this assurance. Paul says in Romans 8.38, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. I can go out across the Mediterranean. I can sit in a Roman prison. I can be beaten in, in Philippi. I can be thrown out of Thessalonica. But nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's amazing. That, that's freedom right, at, right there. That you can go in and out. And regardless of what happens in your life, you can bank on grace. Praise be to God. Let me, let me just give you a couple more. This is how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah 54.10 For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That's what God says. Having been justified by faith, we have half peace with God. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So we have this freedom. And third, and this is just, the, this is just the, the wonder of the Christian life. We have constant nourishment. Look back at verse 9. We go in and out. And then look. Look at the last phrase in verse 9. And we find pasture. We find pasture. The good shepherd saves his sheep by leading them to pasture. Pasture is specifically where the sheep would find food. The 100th Psalm says this, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So God Christ, the Good Shepherd, leads you, and He's constantly leading you in to pasture where you find nourishment. And what the Lord feeds you with is, again, what? The Word of God. He leads you into pasture, and He feeds you the Word of God. Moses said, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word 
which comes from the mouth of God. The psalmist said, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So the Christian's entire existence is to be fed through the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the job of an under-shepherd. That's my job. Remember what the Lord said to Peter? He said, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then he said, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love me. Tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep the Word of God. And I think if God is going to save our nation, and by the way, that's, that's not a sure thing. That's not a sure thing. God could just be moving on to the east. There, there might not be another glory day in this country. Hearts could grow cold. But if God is going to save this country, it is be going to be because the Word of God is honored again in our churches. Because what is going on right now across this country is that churches are looking to entertain the goats rather than feeding the sheep. Saying, how can we get people in here? You know, can we turn out the lights a little bit? Put a rock band up on the stage? Maybe get a little dry ice? That'll create an effect. Just, just go look at what people did around Christmas time and all the crazy things. People said, we can do these things and get people in the room. That'll solve the issue. It won't solve anything. In fact, it'll make people think that they're Christians when they're really not. Part of what, when God brings judgment on a country, what happens is, is that the prophets and the priests stop speaking the Word of God. The pastors stop speaking the Word of God. Listen, this is the prophet Amos. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send, this is God, I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. That's God's judgment on a country is when the lights go out in the churches. People stop speaking the Word of God. There's a famine. There's a famine in the land. And so, listen, true sheep, true sheep, what Christ does is He leads them to pasture where they can be fed. And that's why I still have hope. That's why I do still have hope, is that the lights aren't out yet. That there are sheep that are hungering and thirsting for the Word of God, and they are seeking for that pasture. And you know what our Good Shepherd promises is that He will provide it. We just need to pray that there's more sheep and that there's more shepherds that are feeding them the Word. So that is the saving shepherd that's number five. And then six, and we're going to 
look at this briefly in verse 10, is that he is the life-giving shepherd. He is the life-giving shepherd. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So he's, again, talking about who here? He's talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about the scribes. He's talking about false teachers in general. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So, the false teachers, they come to steal your soul. Greek word is klepto, where we get kleptomaniac, somebody who just obsessively steals. They come to kill your soul. Uh, the word there, you could translate slaughter. It means to, to murder, to, uh, to kill. And then he said, this, this word uh, is, is almost added as a superlative at the end. They come to destroy your soul. That word destroy is the Greek word apollomy. And that word is the word that the demons use to Jesus in the synagogue in, in Mark uh, chapter 1, when Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum, and the demons start saying, we know who you are, Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? What that word means is not just death. It means a death that results in an ultimate judgment. Have you come to cast us into the pit of hell? Have you come to destroy us, bring us to this place of judgment? Luke 17, 27 says, They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. The, the flood killed them, yes, but their death resulted in their judgment. Jude 5 says, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He brought them into judgment. So what Jesus is saying here, follow the logic of what he's saying, is he's saying that the false teachers, what they do in terms of people is that they steal their souls, they kill their souls, and they ultimately destroy people's souls to where people end up on the wrong side of the judgment seat of Christ. That's what they do. Jesus never warned anyone about the danger of the Romans. He always warned them about the danger of the false teachers. The reason being is that the Romans could kill your body, but the false teachers will kill your soul. The most dangerous place in America right now is not the streets of Chicago. The most dangerous place is in the secular classroom. It's at UNC Chapel Hill. It's at Duke. It's at State. Where someone is teaching students that they can live their life without God. And saying that there is no ultimate reality. There is no moral norms. There is no ultimate purpose for this creation. We descended from primates. Morality is just subjective. Our goal is to try to make some utopia here on earth by equally divvying up resources. It's materialism. That's all it is. It's saying all that exists is the here and now, 
and therefore we are the God of reality because we're the smartest people around. So we can be the master of our fates, the captain of our souls. That worldview sends people directly to hell. So yeah, I would much rather be in Afghanistan and get blown up than to lose my soul believing the lies that are being propagated in American classrooms across the country. Here's what's going on in our country right now. Paul put it like this. This is Romans 1.22. He said, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. God gives you up when you exchange the truth about God for a lie. God gives you up. So that worldview ends in the death of your soul, the destruction of your soul. And by the way, do you think that worldview satisfies? Do you think, that world, do you think people are happy as nihilists? You can have all the money in the world, but if you don't have a reason for being on this planet, if you don't have a God to worship, you are going to be a miserable person. It's not joyful. It's not joyful. On the contrary, this is, this is the wonder of the Christian life. The wonder of the Christian life is that Jesus came to bring life. And not just life, but abundant life. Uh, the word that's translated abundant means extraordinary, extravagant, going beyond what is necessary. Christ came that we might have this abundant, overflowing, extravagant life. If you turn over to John chapter 1, in the prologue, John introduces these themes. Verse 4 of, of John chapter 1, John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. If you skip down to verse 16, from him, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The Christian life is the fullest life. It's the best life. It's the abundant life. What is the abundant life? If somebody were to ask you, what's the abundant life? What does it mean that Christ provides you an abundant life? What is it? Well, John throughout his gospel explains exactly what the abundant life is. Let me just give you several descriptions of this abundant life. Look at uh, chapter 3. The first thing that Jesus explains to us about this abundant life is that it's a new life. Look at verse 3 of chapter 3. This is Jesus' explanation to Nicodemus. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That word again is the Greek word anothen. It could mean from above or it can mean a second time. You can take it either way. It is being born from above. It is being born a second time. But regardless of how you look at it, it's a new life. It's a new life that God puts into you. 
And the result is, as Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he says, the, the result is that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Thomas Chalmers, the Anglican preacher, said it's the expulsive power of a new affection that God brings into your life. So it's, it's, it's like a light switch goes off and you have new desires, new affections, new thoughts. It's a new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away, new have come. Second is that it's an eternal life. It's an eternal life. John uses the word over and over in his gospel, aeonion, which means a never-ending reality, a period that doesn't have an end. If you look at verse 15, look at verse 15. Jesus explains this to Nicodemus. He says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Then John adds, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you look over at the 14th verse of chapter 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you flip the page to chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Chapter 6, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And then if you come back to chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So it's an eternal life. It's a never-ending life. Third, it's a spiritual life. It's a spiritual life. If you look at chapter 7, verse 38, Jesus says, whoever, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been crucified. Jesus says that all those who are in the new covenant receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, everybody that's in the new covenant is actually greater than even John the Baptist, who was the greatest man of the Old Testament. Every single person receives the Pentecostal blessing. Every single Christian receives the Pentecostal blessing. Every single Christian receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Every single one of them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Paul says in Romans 8, 9, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So God places His Holy Spirit inside of you, and the Holy Spirit gives you this spiritual life. So that Peter says, 2 Peter chapter 1, that we become partakers of the divine nature. That doesn't mean that we become God, it means that we partake of the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Therefore, the Holy Spirit begins to work, 
and he works in an ethical way. If you read Galatians chapter 5, what does Paul say about the ethics of the Holy Spirit? He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Whereas if you don't have the Spirit, you are going to manifest the, the works of the flesh. So the Holy Spirit becomes to do this inside-out work where you start to desire righteousness. Have you ever met somebody that was just completely changed by the Holy Spirit? And you were like, what happened to that guy? I mean, before he was a hellraiser, now look at him. Some of you are looking at me and you're saying, that was me. What happened to you? Well, God, the Holy Spirit happened to you. He began to do that work in you where you begin to desire the things of God. And he also gives you a spiritual gift where you're able to serve in the life of the church, where you become a member of Christ's body and you use your gifts for the building up and edification of the church. So that's three. It's a spiritual life. Fourth, really important, really important. It's a relational life. Look at John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life. This is the life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So we are created in this new life to commune with our good shepherd, to know him, not just ethereally, but to know him intimately. And this really is the essence of the Christian life, is that you know God, that you have the experience of God, the knowledge of God. Blaise Pascal said that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. So this is the ultimate satisfaction of the soul is to know God. And this is what Jesus brings. This is why Christians are always the most content people, is because we know God. Not, not, just, not just in an academic way, but in an intimate way. I wake up in the morning and I read His Word and He speaks to me through His Word. I pray and I make my requests known to God. I, I commune with God. I come here with the people of God and I experience the power of the Spirit of God. It's a relationship. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And this is what Jesus provides, is he provides this relationship that is the all-encompassing relationship that can satisfy your soul. Nothing else, nobody else can satisfy the human heart besides God. Fifth, it's a righteous life. Look at chapter 13, verse 15. This is right after that Jesus has taken a towel and a basin and washed his disciples' feet. He says to them, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So your life is to begin to look like Christ's life, where you begin to imitate him. Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. We are to follow him. We are to, to follow Christ's example. Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. And that was Christ's motivation, is God's glory. And so our lives are to be lived for the glory and honor of God, because that's how Christ lived his life. So we live this righteous life. You have an ethic. We're, we're not just drawing plays on a whiteboard and saying, I think this is how we're supposed to live. We know how we're supposed to live because Christ has modeled it for us. 
And then six and finally, look at chapter 14. It's a heavenly life. It's a heavenly life. Because one day, our bodies are still under the curse of sin. One day, our bodies will die. But when they die, our souls will immediately go for the believer to be in the presence of the Lord in heaven, where we will await the remaking of a new heavens and a new earth. It is a heavenly life. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. So it's this glory that your life is so full now. It's ethical. You have this relationship with God. You have this promise of eternal life. You, you have so many benefits in this life, but you know ultimately that the location of your life will be changed to heaven instead of this earth. That when you die, you will immediately go to be with the Lord and you will remain forever with Christ in heaven. That's why it's all good. That's why it's all good if you're a Christian. That's why Paul says, uh, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's all good. It's all good. I officiated the, uh, the funeral of my grandfather. This is, uh, I'm thinking now of my mother's dad, my maternal grandfather's name was Robert Myers, Bob Myers. He was a geologist. He was a scientist. He studied rocks for a living. That's what he did. He was, he was a, a strong believer. He was saved. He grew up in Indiana as a Quaker, uh, was not born again. He moved down, started working for an oil and gas company in the deep south in Louisiana, and God saved him at a Baptist church. And uh, he continued uh, to grow in his relationship with the Lord. He would uh, go on to sing in the choir at my uh, grandparents' church. He, um, he, he, did, it, he had some amazing talents. One of his amazing talents is that he could hold his breath for two or three minutes underwater. And what we would do is he, he would take me up to this lake house, and, and he taught me how to fish there, but he would put me out in the water and, that, and then he would submerge himself in the water and pretend to be a giant snapping turtle. And, you know, you, you didn't know where he would come up. He would go down and he would come up some, somewhere completely on the, you know, unrelated to where he had submerged himself. So I, as a kid, I always was trying to reconcile the image in my mind of the submerged snapping turtle and the man that was singing in the, uh, the Baptist choir. But... What struck me about him is that when, when, whenever we'd come together as a family to pray, uh, he would always refer to Christ as his maker. He said, God, my maker. And that's how he would pray. He would pray with a deep reverence for God. And that always struck me as a kid. So it was a joy to, to do his funeral. And I, and I preached his funeral from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, if anyone hears my words, he is like a man who builds his life on the what? On the rock. And he built, as a geologist, he built his life on the spiritual rock of Christ. But here's my point in saying all this, 
is that when he went home to be with the Lord, when he went home to be with the Lord, it wasn't a forever goodbye. It was a temporary goodbye. It's a temporary goodbye. Because I know I will see him again on the other side. Because the Lord has prepared a place for him. He's already gone ahead. And the good shepherd has gone ahead of you. And he's already prepared a place for you. And already prepared a place for anybody that is in Christ. That's the Christian life. It's all good. It never ends. And its ultimate destiny is heaven itself. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for these truths of the Good Shepherd. Lord, we are just stunned thinking about all that you accomplished for us as our Savior, that you died in our place upon the cross, taking upon yourself the wrath of God, that you might save our souls, that you lead us in and out, that we can never lose our salvation. You lead us to green pastures where we are nourished by the Word of God. Lord, that you give us life, and not just life, but you give us abundant life. This life of the knowledge of God, this life of the Christian ethic, that we can live righteous lives, this life of intimacy with you where we are satisfied, this eternal life that goes on forever and ever, and not just an eternal life that goes on forever and ever, but an eternal life that resides in heaven itself, where you have gone ahead to prepare a place for us. We praise you, Lord Jesus Christ, and we do indeed worship you. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.